Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Alice Slater about her thriller, Death of a Bookseller. Alice spent six years working as a bookseller with Waterstones, and she's now a London-based writer, also a co-host of literary podcast, What Page Are You On? She chairs literary events and is a freelance editor and reviewer. In this episode, we discuss how she created separate playlists played movies in the background and used different vocabulary lists to create the distinct narrative voices in her novel. Why, after years of tinkering, she was able to finish the novel in a month and why she loves book talk. But first, before we get into that, here's Alice with an excerpt from Death of a Bookseller. Laura Bunting. Her name was Garden Parties and Wimbledon and Royal Weddings. It was chintzy tea rooms, blitz spirit and bric-a-brac for sale in bright church halls. It was coconut shies and bake sales and guess the weight of the fucking cake. Pale skin, blonde bob hazel eyes. Curvy, around five foot four in flats. A scatter of chocolate moles on her chest, neck and arms. A silver stud in her left nostril, a pinprick scar from a heeled piercing on the right side of her lower lip. Her upper arms and calves were inked with faded, cliched tattoos an anchor, a mermaid, a rose in bloom, a pair of swallows in flight, one on each shoulder, swooping towards her heart, a posy of lavender on her inner wrist. Laura, with her vintage tea dresses, her berets, her crimson lipstick, hand-rolled cigarettes, rose oil perfume that lingered. Laura, with her poetry, Laura, with her tragedy. Oh, how the rest of the team just loved their precious Laura. There was nothing she wouldn't do, no section she couldn't wrangle. Business, a pleasure. History, easy. Even the dullest jobs were transformed into breezy tasks when Laura did them. She cleared trolleys, she priced up boxes of pocket money toys, she shelved the most obscure books. She turned the Sunday morning vacuuming into a quick, light-footed waltz around the shop floor, flipping off the hoover to chat and laugh with booksellers as she passed. It seemed like she had something to say to everyone, some little in-joke or snippet of news that made her think of them. She slotted in so neatly, like she'd been away for a long time and the shop was pleased to have her back. We had a connection, although she was too arrogant to lean into it. With me, she was just curt nods and clipped words and pursed lips, a frank look of dislike plastered over her face. She shrugged off my attempts to bond, took no interest in our shared history. In fact, she spent most of our shifts together looking straight through me walking past the till without so much as a glance in my direction. By Christmas, Laura Bunting was gone. And it was my fault. 
Hi Alice, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Death of a Bookseller. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So can you start by giving us the pitch? What is Death of a Bookseller all about? Okay, so Death of a Bookseller, she's my debut um, and it introduces two booksellers, the best bookseller you could hope to work with and the worst. So Laura is new to this bookshop in Walthamstow. The shop is kind of struggling. She's been sent in to like help zhuzh it all up for Christmas. Um, And she's immediately very popular. She fits right in. Everyone loves her. And then we have Roach. Roach is the absolute opposite of Laura. Uh, She's not a particularly good bookseller. She's not particularly fun to hang out with. And she is absolutely morbidly obsessed with true crime, which Laura finds very distasteful. And the action of the book kind of happens as these two characters meet. Roach desperately wants a friendship out of Laura and Laura would rather be seen dead than hang out with Roach. So where did the kind of first spark of inspiration start? Because if people don't know, you used to be a Waterstones bookseller. Did it, so did it start with a kind of bookselling element or where did where did the kind of first spark come from? So I think... I kind of had two different sparks that ended up aligning. So the book really started with Roach. I just had this idea for this character. I was thinking a lot about both the kind of face of book selling online, which is often a very particular type of person, more of a Laura type of person. Um, I was thinking about like creating something unexpected within that world. So that's where Roach came from. And then the true crime element was also just simultaneously, I was reading a lot of true crime and I was starting to think a lot about true crime. And I began thinking about um, ethically how I felt about it. And I think fiction is such a good kind of machine for figuring out how we think about things and how we feel about them. So Roach, it felt like a natural pairing to kind of bring these two themes together. Yeah, I would like you to talk to us a little bit more about both of your narrators because I think one thing your book does exceptionally well is observational kind of descriptions of these characters. I mean, I think we can all look at Roach and Laura and see snippets of recognisable people. And like, I'm, I've seen people on Twitter be like, oh no, I'm I'm Laura. Like they could, they're really elements of them that you can really see in other people. So I was wondering how you went about creating their characters. Did it start with this kind of archetypal bookseller that you made kind of slightly exaggerated or really focused down on on her details tell us about where Laura and Roach came from so I feel like my characterization like method is sort of like watercolor so I'll start with these very broad very pale strokes which are maybe a little bit archetypal or maybe a little bit cliched and then we'll slowly add more and more layers to kind of create a kind of more 3D person so Laura really started very much through Roach's eyes my original uh, first draft was only Roach speaking. Laura didn't have a voice. So it was very easy to create, like, what is the most annoying person you could imagine? <laughs> if From the perspective of this, like, surly goth, what would she hate? So, no offense, Chloe, but I made her blonde. <laughs> you know, um, I put her in, like, cutesy little matching outfits. Just all this kind of, the kind of things I felt like this character would really, like, pick up on and kind of grow to dislike it's the uh, pumpkin spice lattes isn't it that's what it is yeah 100% thinking as well about those like the cliches of like the uh, I'm not like other girls character you know like Roach is a bit of a pick me although she would never think of herself as such so that's kind of where Laura came from and then 
developing her further, I started thinking like, well, what would be unexpected for this character? Like in an ideal world, she would probably like to see herself as like smoking Sobranis in Paris, but actually she's a bookseller. So she can't afford the really expensive cigarettes. She's going to be smoking Rollies. Um, actually, she carries a lot of trauma. So she doesn't just have one classy little glass of champagne. She absolutely necks the whole bottle and ends up shit faced. Um, and then, yeah, in creating Roach, she came to me much more full, you know, like much more kind of as a whole person. Um, but it was quite fun trying to develop her through Laura's eyes, like thinking what Laura would see, what Laura would pick up on, what Laura would kind of, how she would observe her. It was quite fun. And in fact, the other day I read a review, which is a very positive review, but they described Rach as really badly dressed. <laughs> and as I was reading this review, I was literally wearing the kind of outfit that Rach would wear. So I think maybe there's like a bit of me in both characters as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how much do you think, I mean, everyone always says like your debut, you get so much of you in it. But how much do you think is you and Laura or you and Roach? Hopefully not too much of either. I mean, I feel like, because they all exist in my head. So I think there's probably a fair amount of me in both of them. But hopefully um, I've managed to develop them sufficiently so that that's not recognisable. <laughs> so when you're kind of creating these characters, do you go down the route of like um, kind of character lists or Pinterest boards? Or do you have a kind of... Um, a kind of straightforward method or is it more just you kind of like write to find out who they are yeah I write to find out who they are 100% I feel like um I've, I actually really struggle with those like you can find like questionnaires and things online to develop characters I really struggle with them because I feel like when I am feeling the character out the answers to those questions will feel kind of arbitrary Mm. whereas actually I think through developing them in scenes like figuring out actually how would they react in this moment and sometimes you get it wrong and through editing you realize no she would she actually wouldn't even be in this room or she actually wouldn't even respond to that I found that that's the best way for me to create characters that feel real but that's quite a slow process as well and it involves scrapping a huge amount of work it involves lots of rewrites I like I wish it wasn't how I did it <laughs> But alas, I'm stuck with it. That's your way. And, and it's and it's worked, so it's fine. <laughs> Thank you. Both, both your um, narrators are first-person point of view and you alternate between the two. I wondered what it was like to kind of create these very distinct voices. I know you said you started with purely Roach and then moved on to this double or dual narrative. Their voices are so different. Like Roach is very kind of spiky and cruel, like you say, when she's describing Laura. It's just so mean uh but Laura is also kind of she's very she kind of glamorizes her life she's like to me it reminds me of those very long like Instagram captions of like romanticizing everyday life you know you got the 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 latte artwork that kind of thing can you talk about how you created both of their voices and what the kind of process was like to write these two very distinct voices I'm wondering whether you kind of wrote all Laura's sections at once or did you kind of switch between the two depending on your mood what was it like so I had started off just with Roach and one of the reasons that I decided to bring Laura Laura's voice into into the book was that I couldn't quite bring myself to write purely negatively about book selling mm -hmm. like I loved book selling I loved it so much and I couldn't help but I could feel that love was coming through in the text and I actually then just raised it out certain sections was like this isn't Roach's voice but I like it too much to get rid of it 
So Laura's voice actually started from this very kind of warm, positive place. And that really informed how she kind of, how she speaks. I then, um, I kept each voice separate. So I have I had a whole document just of Rachel's sections, a whole document just Laura's. So when I was working with one character, I could really sink into their voice. I also have all kind of wacky ways of keeping myself in check. Like I had separate play playlists for each character. Um, I find... Uh, this always I always worry this sounds completely wild but sometimes I'll have movies playing in the background while I'm writing so for Roach I'd often have horror movies on in the background and stuff that's very dark to keep me in that like weird headspace um, and I also created a whole vocab list for Roach so in one of my later stage edits I was like right I got this whole list of like really morbid words and just tried to fit in as many as possible just to really bring out this like super death focused energy I think Laura's voice came a little bit more naturally to me. Um, I didn't have to go to quite such lengths to differentiate her. And also like, she's such a funny one because actually she's a deeply unhappy person. And so although she's all sunshine and lollipops, outwardly, inwardly, she's not. So mm. the voice actually ended up pulling a little bit darker. Sometimes I had to kind of lift her up a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting you say about having it initially all through Roach's point of view because I interviewed Heather Parry last year. Have you read her debut? And I have, she's but I love so her. amazing, isn't it? <laughs> um, and she said initially the whole book was from the, the doctor's perspective. And then she had some feedback that was like, no, Heather, no, you just can't do that for the whole book because actually the reader although as a writer we might really enjoy stepping into this kind of dark like mindset and morbid mindset and I'm sure you had a uh, kind of a fun time in, in certain ways writing Roach there's an element that you have to think of the reader and have to think what's their reading experience going to be like if they have that the whole way through you know what though the other thing that like empowered me to uh create Laura but also therefore take Roach to a darker place was reading Boy Parts by Eliza Clark. So I'd already finished my first draft by the time I read that book. Or had I finished it? I was working on the book when I read that book. And I had wor I was worrying a lot about is Roach too dark? Will I get loads of shit for her? Will you know the the reader understand that like she is a fictional character and not an extension of my political worldview. And I was worried. I was really worried. And then I read Boy Parts and was like, you know what? I can I can take her there. Like if Eliza Clark can create Irina Sturgis, I can I can do Roach. I can do Roach justice. And yeah, by separating those the kind of softer bits out, I could take her darker. But then yeah, Laura doesn't lift the whole book up and make it a little bit lighter. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand why some readers really dislike the kind of dark characters and the very unlikable or whatever you want to call them, but I just think like really like there's so much more to fiction than just characters that are relatable or do things that we understand like surely the best place to explore darkness and human nature is through fiction. I completely agree and I love I also just love characters I love writing characters and I love reading characters that are that do things that are unexpected mm. you know like and that, that doesn't always have to be like murder but I like to be surprised by characters, but I also like to, I kind of like to be egging them on. I'm like, go on, how far are you going to go? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and certainly Roach goes to places that as a reader, you're reading it thinking, 
like oh my god she's going to get found out or or you know two seconds away from being discovered or she's doing things that you're just like this is insanely creepy but at the, at the same time you are kind of almost excited to see how far she pushes it and also what the consequences will be so yeah I think yeah push push your characters to dark places it's always a fun place to go <laughs> I'd love to talk a little bit more about the kind of true crime element to the book and you mentioned like your interest in and reading and I think we've all we've all been there and watched you know plenty of true crime documentaries or listened to the podcast and stuff um and I know you're um, a fan of the book uh, Savage Appetites um, by mm-hmm. Rachel Monroe which is a great book that explores like uh kind of the human relationship to true crime and I was wondering kind of what was it about the the kind of surge in popularity of true crime that made you want to write about it in this novel and because Roach obviously loves it for the kind of the morbid fascination she goes to like a podcast live show Laura has a very personal uh traumatic response to true crime but also a personal connection but she writes poetry or includes true crime in her poetry so what was it you were kind of hoping to to say or explore about true crime in in this book so I feel like it's definitely an exploration not a thesis I don't I kind of now have sort of settled on how I feel but the writing of the book was partly me kind of going on that intellectual journey and deciding how I feel about true crime as a genre Um, It kind of one of the kind of kickoff points for me was that I went with one of my best pals to see um, a live podcast recording of my favorite murder. I went to see my favorite murder um, with my best pal and I wasn't a massive fan of the podcast, but, you know, I love a good time. We got some wine. We were having fun. But I had this really strange experience where we were in the Hammersmith Apollo, so this massive venue. And the podcast hosts invited a member of the audience to come on stage and share their story. And this person got on stage and shared their story, which was a complete non-story. They walked down the same street that someone was then later murdered on. It was not their story. It was very strange. But uh, she then was able to fill in the gaps and say, you know, that then this had happened to this person and the perpetrator was cornered by the police and he fell to his death. And this whole room, mostly of women, all applauded this. And I felt like I was standing at the gallows. It was such an unnerving experience. And, you know, the the conversation that we were having in this space had nothing to do with the justice system, had nothing to, it was very apolitical. And yet we were absolutely, you know, surrounded by people who were applauding this this death. Um, And I just, it gave me, it gave me chills. I really didn't like it. And it really got me thinking about the responsibility that we all have to think about the nature of the media that we're consuming and whether or not that media is useful or putting anything, you know, potentially harmful out into the world. So I really started thinking about it. And but then I also found that this train of thought very quickly just led to a, a point of, you know, believing that all true crime is exploitative, which I also don't feel is true. So then I read Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. By that point, I think I'd maybe written 30,000, 40,000 words of the book. And for those who've not read it, Rachel Monroe writes about true crime and women who are interested in it from four different perspectives. It's just such a fascinating book. And it, I don't know, it was the first time that I'd really read something that was critically engaging with the genre without just fully dismissing it outright. 
so that's what kind of where it all came from and you know by the time I finished writing the book I had just consumed so much true crime that it was definitely doing me some damage like I was getting increasingly paranoid I would wake up in the night be convinced there was someone in the flat I felt increasingly vulnerable and wondered if maybe I would be happier if I stopped reading that shit and so far I think I am <laughs> but you know I'm I can't help but be a kind of morbid beast so I'm sure if something new comes out that has that like literary bent or a personal bent I will probably be stuck back in. <laughs> I wonder whether that kind of anxiety and tension of you experience this paranoia was almost helpful in a way for building the tension in your book because you do have characters with that really I mean it's a very there are points in the book where you have that really high intensity and characters wondering whether um, they're being followed or whether there's someone's in the house I wonder whether that kind of mood was helpful in a way because I know you said you've used music and film and I'm mean, not suggesting that people go and do like method acting versions of writing but you know <laughs> um, I wonder whether it was actually helpful for you for writing your story. Oh it definitely was it definitely was I think I put all of that in the book you know Laura does experience and not without cause but she does experience a lot of paranoia about home invasion um, about people being in her space of being watched and that all felt, it was all a very earnest, emotional thing that I was going through. Um, I definitely don't necessarily recommend it, but if you're experiencing it, you may as well use it. That is know? true, yeah. So apart from being this really grossing thriller, your novel deals with obviously bookselling and you've put in a lot of uh, kind of Easter eggs and fun little, uh, fun little experiences that I'm sure many booksellers will relate to. Um, and I was wondering, like, how fun it was for you to be able to really embrace the kind of the nerdy side of, of the bookish world and all the details of, of book selling that are all these kind of like in jokes. And I was kind of wondering what that experience was like for you. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was fun. It was very fun. I mean, I remember for quite a long time, I'd always quite liked the idea of writing a book based in a bookshop. And then some colleague, I can't even remember who said it to me. Someone very casually said, oh, every bookseller wants to write a book about bookselling. Every bookseller thinks bookselling is interesting. And I remember thinking like, oh, fuck, is that true? Is that, am I doing that? Is it a real cliche? So I kind of shelved the idea, pun unintended, um, for absolutely ages thinking like, oh, no, I don't want to be doing something cliched. I'll, I'll rethink. Um, but of course, a, you know, a bookshop for forcing together characters that, do not would not interact in the real world uh retail is a great place to put them because you are absolutely trapped with that person you have to interact with them there is no way you can go you cannot even leave the shop floor if it's just the two of you working um so it felt very natural and I was like fuck it I'm gonna indulge I'm gonna indulge <laughs> myself I'm just gonna do it um and then yeah I had a lot of fun trying to figure out you know which secrets to share and what I should hold back and thinking through like what's actually interesting to the reader and what's just indulgent I so, see yeah, I really enjoyed it how good a judge do you think you are of kind of what is interesting to the reader in terms of like the book selling element because I think particularly if it's something that we as a writer we're really interested in or obsessed by it's hard to to work out whether that is just something we like or whether the reader would like it as well luckily that is what my editor was very good at saying <laughs> <laughs> So we're definitely sorry. Yeah, well, we took some bits out where it was just like actually 
this is just too much like we don't yeah. need to go into this much detail about like the life cycle of books or you know christmas stock situations <laughs> like we don't need to do that so i'm very thankful for that otherwise it could have perhaps been a little bit tedious <laughs> well it isn't thankfully um i want to touch on your i guess your journey from from your, your writing journey as a whole and i know that um you've spoken about your writing process on your podcast that you host with Bethany Retta. Uh, if anyone doesn't know it, it's what page are you on? I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly recommend that podcast. Um, I will link the episode in the show notes, but I wonder whether you could just speak a little bit about your kind of writing process in general. What kind of writer you are? Are you a planner? Are you an early morning writer? Just give us a, a few of the details. So I'm just chaos. And I know that sounds like very like, oh my God, I'm so random and quirky. (laughs) It's a burden that I deal with. Um, I'm not a planner. I really like to feel my way through my plots based on my characters and the vibe and, you know, whatever inspiration I happen to have found that week. Um, I do a lot of writing on my phone, uh, on my notes app. I do a lot of writing um, like on the fly um I try I love the idea of being an early morning writer and I kind of am like on my days off so I work as a copywriter four days a week for a marketing agency so on those days I'm I'm just working I will only write in the evenings Uh, but on my days off I'd be up at like eight and get right on it and then work pretty solidly all day um sometimes quite late into the night if I'm on deadline like I am right now um, which I just don't, I don't recommend it. I wish that I was methodical and slow. Um, I wish that I was capable of writing books in chronological order. Uh, but alas, I've discovered that the best way to get the thing done is to stop fighting the grain of your own brain, like stop trying to go against the grain um, and do whatever gets the word count up. You tend to write scenes that you that come to you and that are most interesting at the time, um, rather than thinking, okay, today I've got to write a confrontation between Roach and Laura? Um, Most of my first draft and yeah I write quite short and I write based purely on my own pleasure so a lot of my first draft was just whatever inspo I had. Um, I love reaching have you ever heard the phrase flow state you know like you know like that for me is like the nirvana of writing and I find that I will only ever really feel that um, when I feel like super inspired. So a lot of maybe those those scenes end up on the cutting room floor because the plot goes in a different direction, whatever, that maybe they'll get reused later on if the setting or concept works in something else. Otherwise, fuck them, doesn't matter. Um, But then also, actually, you can't just write like that. You do have to write the connective tissue as well. And that's when I'll be a little bit more like, okay, you have to write the scene where these characters get introduced now. And often I'll find that I really hate it. I won't be happy with the writing. I'll keep sulking about it, keep wondering if I can just cut it. Um, it will come in and out, in and out, in and out. And then eventually I'll just have to like send it all off as it is and see what my editor thinks. <laughs> and what do you do on the days that you're really, really struggling? Do you just kind of stop and give up or do you persevere and, and kind of think I've just got to get something down and then I can do something with it later? Um, honestly, it depends on the time of day. If it's like 11am, you just have to suck it up. Like I don't get to have days off just because I can't be bothered to do it. Um, if it's later in the day, I kind of think if I'm hating, particularly if I'm working with edits, if I'm hating the suggestions and feeling really dismissive of them, then I probably need to take a break and come back to it. If I'm actually hating the work or hating myself, then I then I will stop for the day because <laughs> I probably just need a break. <laughs> 
So I wanted to speak as well about your career in the book world before you came became an author, because you've done a lot of chairing events, um, interviewing other authors. You've worked as a bookseller. You've got your podcast. Also, you're you're very known for kind of review, reviewing books and chatting about books on your social media. I wondered whether you think that your kind of knowledge of the industry helped you become a better writer or gave you a, a, a better knowledge of the process and the industry um, to, to understand what it takes for a book to become a success? Yeah, I mean, certainly I think it helps to know what you're getting into. Um, I'm just, I'm obsessed with this industry. I'm obsessed with books, but I also am obsessed with the nuts and bolts of how everything works. I'm just, you know, curious like that. And I do think it's been helpful. It's been really helpful to um, be approaching things like marketing meetings from a place of knowledge to kind of understand what is unusual or what's normal. Um, that has been a massive help. In terms of like the success of the book, I guess we don't know yet because it's not out yet. So we can only hope that it's all going to go well, but you, you can never take these things for granted. Um, but yeah, I mean, I said, I feel like for any any aspiring author, any debut author, that would be my advice is to find out as much as you possibly can um, about how the industry works because it's not going to hurt, you mm. know? It's not going to hurt. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And you're one of the people who have really embraced BookTok. I know you're a big fan of TikTok. And I know many writers or people who are hoping to get into the industry really worry about, A, social media, but particularly at the moment, TikTok. And they worry that, you know, they have to be doing it and they 
you know they have to get in, get involved what's your experience of tiktok being like and and what would your advice be to anyone particularly writers who are out there interested actually in using the platform people who like maybe aren't afraid and want to take that first step i mean i feel like ultimately if it's not something in your heart that you really want to do then I don't think there's any value in forcing yourself to do it because it's ultimately just going to be a big distraction from the actual work that you have to do what you actually have to do is write your damn books and read other people's books whether you're reading front list or back list like those are your two most important jobs um however if you are already into social media and you're interested in a new platform I think TikTok is a really exciting space it has a very different audience to both Twitter and Instagram. Um, you don't have to be um, a creator on there to benefit from it as well. In fact, I would absolutely advise anyone interested in TikTok to just set up an account and be an observer. Find the good stuff. Don't be lazy and just watch the clickbait shit and think that that's what BookTok is. Like you do have to put some work in to like find the creators who are saying something smart who are creating content about your genre, um, you do have to do that work, but it's really rewarding. And, you know, as a result, I've met so many really exciting, interesting people who I would not have met on other platforms. So I think it's really worth doing. Um, in terms of content creation, I'm not going to lie, man, it's really hard. Like, I think the platform has changed the way that it works. So TikTok, it used to be a little bit easier to get your kind of videos out there and viewed by other users. It's now so much more difficult. The algorithm has just kind of eased back a little bit. Um, so I think it's also about being consistent and not feeling as though low view counts are anything other than just an, the, the natural start of building up any new platform. Mm. Um, I also think not overthinking it is probably golden advice. Like you don't have to be creating really complicated videos with loads of different cuts and a voiceover music you can just upload seven seconds of a camera filming the sunset a stack of books whatever and put text over the top that's still a tiktok you're already doing that on instagram you're probably already creating those sorts of posts on twitter you can just recycle that material and put it on tiktok nice and simple yeah and i also really agree with what you've said about not doing it if you if your heart's not in it because I think it's really obvious when people aren't comfortable on social media and and feel like they're doing it almost because they have to or they're feeling forced to do it and it just feels doesn't feel authentic and I think that's that's probably not going to help you know if you're if you're someone that just doesn't want to do it I don't really think that it's not going to kill you to to not be doing it so I think it's probably better to stay away yeah I agree and also like at the end of the day with TikTok as a writer, whether you're on there or not, hopefully your books will be on there anyway. Like you don't have to be involved in that. Mm. Let the readers find your books and let them share their passion for it. You don't have to be involved. Yeah, and it also takes away the temptation then to comment on people's reviews, <laughs> particularly if they're negative. So, <laughs> oh my god, I know, terrifying, absolutely <laughs> terrifying. So, Alice, can you tell us about how you came to get your agent and your book deal? Did you, I'm guessing, I mean, you've always written and you've written short stories and things. I'm guessing you've always wanted to, wanted to be a published author. Yeah, man, it's been the dream like forever. Um, I do have a slightly unusual like path into publication though. So, or maybe it's not that unusual, but. There are like hundreds of ways. And I always yeah. think it's helpful. In, it's kind of helpful and unhelpful to hear it because it's, 
it's probably frustrating for some people to hear different routes but at the same time I feel like it's slightly reassuring that you don't only have to do the querying and then hearing no's or hearing nothing there are other ways to it so yeah share, share your story and also I think as my story will demonstrate I think like the other things you're doing in the writing world could still be shuffling you closer to that goal even if you think it's not so basically I got a couple of short stories published in like I think the first one was 2018 and then maybe like one or two a year up to about 2020 and I just got really lucky that every single story that I published I was sharing on Twitter and Instagram and an editor saw one of my short stories really liked it and they approached me for a um, IP project so for those who don't know what that is it's where uh, an editor or a publishing house come up with an idea and then they hire a writer to write it um and I was kind of intrigued the idea I was under NDA so I can't tell you what it was but it was something that I was very interested in and thought it would be really fun um but I kind of said can I do it under a pen name and they were like not really like we would want your name in it so I was like okay could I be honest that it's an IP project then because I would I hated the thought of like you know taking someone else's idea and mm. presenting it as my own and they were like oh that's really weird um yeah I suppose so if you wanted to like mm. so I was very on the fence uh and then spoke to a friend of mine and was like what do you think I should do a friend who works in the industry and she was like I was like I have this novel I've got like 40,000 words written so it's nowhere near finished but then I have this thing which could be like just good easy money I'm a professional copywriter so it would just be another job you know whatever and she was like speak to an agent you should just contact agents with this dilemma and see what they think mm. so I did and I, I approached maybe 10 agents and one of my like first choice agents got back to me really quickly and was like I'd send me the rest of your book and I was like okay this is all I've got obviously I've been honest up front that it wasn't finished and she was like how quickly can you finish this and I was like oh god I don't know what do, what do you reckon and she was like do you reckon you could finish it by January and this was like early December and I was like wow yeah I was like fuck it maybe yeah and we you know we were in lockdown so it's not like I had anything else to do so I signed with this agent I finished the book she sold it and the rest is history wow so what happened with the IP project is that still kind of on the back burner or was that no it, it was just I think the nature of these things like it was a timely idea that needed to be right. produced very quickly so we said no we've decided that we're going to focus on something else and that was that and I don't I don't know if anything ever became of it I don't know if that I don't know if they ever if they found another writer or not maybe mm. it will appear one day <laughs> and then you'll be spotting it going I know I know the yeah. secret <laughs> So the first 40k that you'd written, how long had that taken? Because obviously the, the kind of finishing part of it happened within the space of a month or so. But what about that first 40k? How long would you be working on it? Oh man, it took me, I mean, I think I first came up with Roach as a character in 2016. Um, whilst I was book selling. So I left book selling October 2017. I think I'd maybe got 20k done in that time, maybe less, maybe 10k. Um, left book selling and then got to the 40k mark by December 2020 so it was very slow um, but of course by the time a there's nothing uh, nothing will get you writing quicker than that carrot on the stick of an mm -hmm. agent being like get this done and we can get this moving 
But also having spent all that time with those characters, I really knew them. And even though the book that I actually finished and that we sold to Hoda, to my editor, Beth, um, the, we ended up with a very different ending. Like it's actually a very different book, but I'd spent enough time. I'd spent so long with those characters. I was able to produce the work at that kind of speed. Um, I don't think I could do a novel from scratch that quickly. Mm, mm, yeah, that's a that's quite a feat. Um, was there a point where you thought, this this book is it this is the one that's going to to get me published because obviously you'd written short stories and I imagine you kind of had other ideas for books as you were writing was there ever a point where you were like this is the one or 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 did you not have that feeling I mean I think I remember really clearly when I was on about okay so in my house my husband's also a writer and in my house we always say that when you hit the first 10k that's when you like have a stew going, you know, it's like a, a, an old like arrested development joke. Like then you've got your stew going once you hit 10K. And so I remember like having hit my stew point and I told Bethany, my podcast um, co-host, Bethany Rutter, about this idea that I was working on. And every time over the next, like however many years I talked about or lamented like, oh God, I'm still not where I want to be, blah, blah, blah. She would always kind of remind me like, I really think this is the one that you need to finish though. I really think that this is the one. Um, So I always had that encouragement of at least getting to the end of the book. But truthfully, I think the only time I really felt, yes, this is going to be the one is when, when we sold it. Then I was like, okay, now we know now you can believe yeah Yeah. you mentioned having kind of the some industry knowledge already which has really helped you know kind of what's normal what's not normal but has there been anything since you got your book deal that's been surprising or challenging and how have you kind of coped with the whole publication journey Hmm, I don't think that I've had any surprises I'm trying to think if there was anything that like really took me by surprise Generally, no, I feel like, um, I feel very lucky, I guess, that, you know, the Hodder team have just done something so exciting. I think that was the biggest surprise is like seeing in the hands of others what this book would look like in the world. And, you know, like you do get asked um, a lot, like, do you have any ideas for the cover? Do you have any ideas for how you would market it? Like all very loose conversations just to like see what page, whether or not you're all on the same page. And I just couldn't, I, I couldn't, I had some ideas for the cover, but do you know what I mean? Like for me, it was just, it existed so deeply in my head. I couldn't really imagine it out in the world. So I think that was the biggest surprise is just how much fun the campaign has been, especially because the book is so dark. Like there's a lot of um, stuff in there about like grief and trauma and, you know, it was there's lots of real sadness in there. So it was really exciting to see the hotter team really pull out the kind of dark humor and to do something really fun Mm. otherwise I feel like you know it's not a completely serious book there is a lot of like fun stuff in there as well but I kind of forgot about that because I was too busy thinking (laughs) about all all the dead people and all the sadness so yeah I think that was my biggest personal surprise yeah I mean there's a lot of darkness but there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff as well like I I think if you're going in expecting relentless darkness it's definitely not that um and I think there's like you say there's a lot of humor but it's a lot of it is like quite black humor so but that's fun so um I can see why they kind of wanted to focus on the the fun side of it as well 
Um, so finally, are you able to tell us anything at all? I know you're kind of up against deadlines at the moment, but can you tell us anything about what you're working on next? So the nature of my brain is that I change my mind quite a lot. So I don't dare give you um, any kind of plot summary, you know, yeah. any kind of elevator pitch, because fuck knows what <laughs> <laughs> end up being published. But I can tell you it is set in my favourite city in the world. It's set in New Orleans. You've just been to uh, like on a research trip, haven't you there? Yes, I did. I went in January. Um, and how was that when you kind of were coming up with this book while you were there? Oh, I mean, it was it was amazing. It was very, it's wild. Like I've been to New Orleans maybe, I think that was my sixth trip. One of my best friends lives out there. It, it's a city that I'm obsessed with. And um, I'd kind of, when I was deciding whether or not to go, it wasn't really an ideal time to go. We had a lot of stuff going on. In, uh, in our personal life and me and my husband's you know life um so it wasn't an ideal time to travel but I really knew that I needed to go and I was so relieved I did because obviously I hadn't been since before the pandemic and like every city it has just changed so much mm. and you know our memories are so unreliable I think you can get a little bit bogged down and obsessed with getting things factually correct and that actually sometimes you don't need to be so detailed when you're describing a place in fiction. Uh, but still, like just funny little details that I never would have picked up on um, or that I hadn't remembered. So, yeah, it was a very useful trip. I'd love to try and go again before the final deadline, but I just don't think it's going to be possible. So, ooh, we'll see. <laughs> well, I, who knows what it's going to be about, but I'm very excited to read it, nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it will change again when your editor works with you on it because that is the nature of uh, of writing a book. Uh, yeah. but thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I've had such a nice time. That was Alice Slater talking about her thriller, Death of a Bookseller, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.